God promises blessing and salvation for his people. People change. If you've watched the Toy Story movies, you've seen how people change from the perspective of children's toys. Children outgrow their toys. In Toy Story 2, we're introduced to Jessie, the yodeling cowgirl, whose owner outgrew her. In one scene, Jessie shares with the cowboy toy Woody what had happened. Remembering back to when her owner was young, Jessie sang of what happened between her and her, her former owner. As she sings, there's a video montage in the back showing this little girl growing up and losing interest in her once favorite toy. And so, Jessie isn't yodeling when she sings, through the summer and the fall, we had each other, that was all. Just she and I together, like it was meant to be. And when she was lonely, I was there to comfort her, and I knew that she loved me. So the years went by, I stayed the same. But she began to drift away, I was left alone. Still I waited for the day when she'd say, I will always love you. But in the movie, Jessie's former owner wouldn't say those words to her once loved toy again. She, she stays out of the picture. And so it's difficult for a, a toy like Jessie to begin to trust humans again. We know that humans have likes and dislikes that change. Kids grow up and go to college and are probably not going to take all their stuffed animals and, doll and dolls to college. But perhaps some of the, the poignancy of, of Jesse's song is that humans can relate to the emotions of feeling left behind or unloved or betrayed by other humans. Humans forget. Humans break promises. Humans are so often driven by selfishness and, and not by love. And for better or worse, humans change. But praise God that God does not change. When it comes to God's character, when it comes to God's love, God's mercy, God's kindness, God's justice, God does not change. God does not forget the way that we do, and God will always keep his promises. At the beginning of our passage this morning, we're going to consider this truth that God does not change. And this is good news for God's people. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3, verses 16. Uh, sorry, Malachi chapter 3, verse 6 to 18. Malachi 3, 6 to 18. You can also find the passage printed in your bulletin. In this sermon series through the book of Malachi, God has continued to reveal himself to his people 
correcting wrong ways that they think about God. From questioning God's love in Malachi 1, verse 2, to questioning God's justice in Malachi 2, verse 17, we have been met with doubts and questions that, that God has graciously answered. Similarly, in our passage this morning, the Israelites express their doubts and questions, and God graciously answers, revealing something of who he is and what he will do. So please follow along as I read Malachi 3, verse 6 to 18. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you in your tithes and contributions? You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord, but you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test, and they escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and one who does not serve him. If I could sum up the main idea of this passage for us in one simple sentence, I would do so in this way. God promises blessing and salvation for his people. God promises blessing and salvation for his people. This passage can be split up into two main sections that will be our two main points for this morning. Both, both points come as questions. The first point is, God promises to bless, so why would we rob God? That's in verses 6 to 12. The second point is, God promises to save, so why would we doubt? That's in verses 13 to 18. So let's begin with the first point. God promises to bless, so why would we rob God? Verse 6 is the beginning of the fifth disputation in the book of Malachi. 
This structure is familiar, but each time somewhat flexible in how Malachi uses it. In verses 6 to 12, God first makes a statement. There is a back and forth as the Israelites have a couple questions to ask God, and God responds to their questions and further explains. Look at the initial statement that God makes from the beginning of verse 6 until the middle of verse 7. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Notice the logic of the first sentence. Because the Lord does not change, he has not consumed his people. He has not destroyed the Israelites. Unlike us as humans, God does not change. So what does God's unchangingness mean for God's people? As we've seen in the book of Malachi, the, the Israelites have done plenty that should make God righteously angry. They have offered unworthy sacrifices. They have intermarried with worshipers of foreign gods. They have committed adultery, and yet God hasn't destroyed his people. God hasn't consumed them. Why not? It's not because of something good about the Israelites. It's because God does not change. God does not change in that he is a God of steadfast love. He's merciful. He's patient. He's faithful. And he keeps his promises. Even though God's people deserve punishment, God is going to continue to show his patience towards them in sending Malachi to speak on his behalf, to warn God's people to repent. This idea of returning to God in this verse is a, is a good picture of what repentance is. The root meaning of repentance is, is a turning away from sins and to God. Here God states that Israel must return to God and that God would return to Israel. God does not change, but the Israelites must change. They must turn back to God. They must repent. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, I hope that this picture of turning can be something that you can think on. Our natural state as humans is to be walking away from God. God is calling you to turn around, to do a 180-degree turn, and to turn towards God. But the people of Israel sadly do not see their need to turn towards God. And so we read from the, first, from the second half of verse 7. But you say, this is the Israelites talking, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. Here the Israelites ask God two questions. First, they ask God, how shall we return? God says that the Israelites are robbing God. We know from the rest of Malachi that there are also other ways the Israelites need to repent. But here specifically, the Israelites must repent of robbing God. But it seems like the Israelites don't, don't think of themselves as robbers. And so they ask, how have we robbed you? And God replies that the Israelites are robbing God in their tithes and, and contributions. 
Consider how this is tithing, or consider how this is robbery. God commanded the people of Israel to tithe and to give other gifts beyond tithing, to give these contributions. The tithe was around 10% plus all the other contributions. But why would this be called robbery if the Israelites didn't give it? We need to remember that everything is God's in the first place. All that Israel has is from God, and God still has a claim over all that Israel has. Let's say that you hired an investor to invest 500,000 RMB in the stock market. You told this investor some ideas for how to invest the money, but in the end said that, oh, you can just invest it as you see best. A few years go by, you want to take the money back, put it towards buying a house. So you give the investor a call, and the investor tells you, sorry, the money's mine now. It's here with me, it's mine. And the investor chuckles and hangs up, and you're thinking, now what would you call that? That's robbery. The investor is meant to take care of the money for you, but he doesn't get to decide it's his money all of a sudden. But this is what the Israelites were doing with God's money, and, and this is what we're so tempted to do with God's money as well. It's called robbery because it was never our money in the first place. But brothers and sisters, are we guilty of robbing God? Let's first look at our own hearts. Most of us like to think that we, we earned our money. We earned it through blood, sweat, and tears. Maybe you've been working Jojo Leo. But who created you in a way that you were able to get your current job? Who provided you with the opportunity for your current job? If you're gifted in ways that are necessary for this particular job, then where did those gifts come from? It, it really all goes back to God, doesn't it? There was a, a Gospel Coalition article asking several Christian leaders about their theology of money. Let me read part of a response from Randy Alcorn. He's the founder and director of Eternal Perspective Ministries. He writes, Grasping God's ownership of everything is the foundation of a biblical theology of money. Faithful money-managing stewards act in the owner's interest, regularly consulting him to understand and implement his investment priorities. Search the scriptures, seek God's wisdom, then give, save, and spend his money well, and thereby love him, your family, neighbors, and a needy world. He goes on to write, Jesus gave the best investment advice. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Matthew 6, verse 20. We can't take our treasures with us, but we can send them on ahead. So brothers and sisters, it's a good reminder, our, our money is not ours in the first place. We're simply stewards of, of what God has given us for this season. So let's begin to, to act like it. And if you'd like to spend more time considering what the Bible teaches about money, Randy Alcorn's book, Money, Possessions, and Eternity, back on the book table, is a helpful resource for you. 
Let's continue reading from verse 9 until verse 12. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the fields not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Because of Israel's robbing of God, God has put a curse on Israel. And then verse 10 might, might just be the most misquoted verse in the whole book of Malachi. The command in verse 10 is clear. The people are to bring the full tithe into the storehouse. And in this verse, God tells Israel to put him to the test. God invites Israel to trust him by giving the full tithe. And God says he will open the windows of heaven and pour down blessing until there is no more need. Verse 10 is often misapplied to say that if you give God more money, God will make you rich. People end up treating God like a stockbroker, expecting two or three more times money back. But that's not at all what this verse is saying, is it? Remember that it's not our money in the first place. And also note that in the context, this is speaking to Israel as a nation. It's not speaking to individual persons or families. God does promise to bless Israel. But that doesn't mean that the most generous donors get richer. Instead, the promise is that if they obey in this way, God will bless the nation so that there will be more, no more need. In other words, there will be no needy people. God will bless the nation so that even the poorest of the poor will have enough food. Now, isn't that a much more wonderful promise? So do you see how wrong it would be for us to expect from this verse that we become rich? So, brothers and sisters, there are false teachers who teach that if we, that if we put more money in the offering bag, we're going to get more back. But our offerings to God shouldn't be motivated by greed. God does promise blessing and obedient, for the obedience of his people, but the blessing may not be in this life. And the blessing may be directed more towards brothers and sisters who are more needy than you are. And that's a good thing. The windows of heaven in verse 10 may have the connotation of rain that God sends to allow the crops to grow. That would make sense when paired with verse 11. God both causes crops to grow and he protects the Israelites' crops from bugs or insects that would eat the crops. The crops will bear good fruit. And finally, in verse 12, we read, Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. When Israel turns back to God in obedience by giving tithes and contributions, God will bless the nation of Israel in a way that will be a testimony to the world. Other nations will see that, that Israel is a blessed nation. 
As the church today, we are the, the new Israel. We are the people that God has covenanted with, and God has blessed us. God has blessed us in Jesus Christ. God has blessed us, most importantly, not with material blessings, but with the spiritual blessings of being in Christ. And what about the promise here of there being no need? I hope that at WSBC we're a church that cares for the most needy among us. That if there comes a time when a member is struggling to put food on the table because of sickness or job loss, we as a church care for the needs of that brother or sister. This also means that we know about one another's needs, that we share about our own needs, that we have relationships in the church in which we're honest when we're in trouble, and that we care for one another well in a way that makes it easy for people to open up about trials and difficulties. So brothers and sisters, let's be a church that is generous to one another. We can consider the example of the early church in Jerusalem. Acts 2.45 says, And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all, as any had need. So what a good example for us today. So often we're like toddlers in childcare who will not share the toys in the childcare room. But first, the toys don't belong to you. And even if the toys did belong to you, you should still share. So brothers and sisters, how are you stewarding the money that God has entrusted to you for your short time, for our short time on this planet? Now, the application for us in thinking about this further may, may be different depending on how we're tempted. We talked about this a little bit in men's group. As, as we talk with one another, we can see that, that we're all different. We have all have different struggles and temptations. So consider how you're tempted. Some of us may be more tempted towards greed. And we must be careful that if we accumulate more money, we do not simply become greedy for more. So as we actively invest or buy property, what is the goal? We must guard against relying on having money in the bank or a house for a sense of security. Our goal is to honor God with our money. And it's a good thing if you accumulate more money so that you can be more generous. But so often when we accumulate more money, it begins to control us more. Other words of us might be tempted more towards laziness or, or not wanting to steward the money God has entrusted to us. For those of us tempted in this way, we, may, we must grow in actively seeking to honor God with the money rather than just having it kind of sit there. I probably would be more in this category. For example, before my family's recent trip to Thailand, my wife found all the, the Thai bot from a few years ago that was still kind of sitting in the closet. I didn't really mind having it just sitting around in the house for a few years, but that wasn't a good use of the money either. So in finishing this point, let's again consider the question. God promises to bless. So why would we rob God? The answer is clear. 
there's no good reason for us to rob God. Instead, let us acknowledge that everything good comes from God's hand. Now we come to point two. God promises to save, so why would we doubt? God promises to save, so why would we doubt? First look with me at verses 13 to 15. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Here we have the beginning of the sixth and final disputation in the book of Malachi. First, we have God's statement, Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. Then Israel responds with the question, How have we spoken against you? And then God answers Israel's question. Israel had said or thought things like, It is vain to serve God. Israelites thinking that it was worthless to serve God had become a common thing. No wonder that Israelites had no problem giving God polluted offerings or not tithing if they had begun to think that serving God was not worth the effort. The Israelites were looking at their circumstances and thinking, what's in it for me? How is God rewarding us for serving him? How is God answering? Mourning was a public way of displaying sorrow and worship that involved wearing uncomfortable clothing and, and dirtying oneself. Even this kind of display, the Israelites thought, was not being responded to by God. In contrast to God proclaiming that all nations would call Israel blessed, back in verse 12, these Israelites call the arrogant blessed. They think that the evildoers are the ones prospering and that God is doing nothing to judge. These are serious charges against God. The Israelites are charging God with a rewarding evil. The Israelites are saying that they have served God, but God has not blessed them. We know from the previous chapters in the book of Malachi that actually the Israelites have not faithfully served God. They are guilty of many serious sins against God. They must repent of their sin and turn back to God. And yet the Israelites come to God with this attitude that they have obeyed God, so they deserve God's blessing. The Israelites look at those who are doing evil with what sounds like envy. Why is it that those people who put God to the test can simply escape? Perhaps you and I have thought similar things before. Why is it that some of the richest people in the world are really not good people? Why is it that people are still getting away with crimes such as human trafficking, even with the kind of surveillance technology that we have today? Or why is it that the deceitful, flattering coworker always seems to be the one getting ahead? But would asking these questions cause us to say or to think that it is worthless 
to serve God. We must be wary of beginning to envy evildoers. I hope that we can remember to trust God, even when it seems that the wicked are getting away with far too much. In thinking on trusting God, it would be good to continue reading the next, next few verses. In the other disputations and other sections of Malachi, we continue to hear God speak, but it's interesting here that we first see the response of some of God's people. Look at verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. Notice how the actions of this small group of Israelites who fear the Lord is a rebuke to the questions and doubts that came before in verses 14 and 15. Many Israelites were saying it is vain to serve God, but there was a faithful remnant that feared God. Perhaps Malachi's preaching had not completely fallen on deaf ears. There were those who wanted to hear from God. These God-fearers talked with one another. Now, let's not overlook this act of, of speaking with one another. There was a, a Puritan pastor named Thomas Watson who wrote a book published back in 1682 expositing Malachi 3, verses 16 to 18. One chapter in this book is titled, The Godly Should Speak of God. In that chapter, Watson helps us consider the content of our speech as Christians. There's good application for us three plus centuries after he wrote it. So how should we be speaking with one another? Here are some thoughts to get us going. Speak of the promises of God. Speak of the preciousness of Christ. He is beauty and love. He has laid down his blood at the price of your redemption. Have you a friend who has redeemed you and never speak of him? Speak one to another of sin and what a deadly evil it is. Speak of the beauty of holiness. Speak one to another of your souls inquire whether they are in health. Speak about death and eternity. Can you belong to heaven and not speak of your country? So brothers and sisters, do you speak of these things to one another? Do we speak of these things to one another? Many of us will grab lunch together after church. This is a great opportunity for us to spend more time with other believers. And, and when we do, what do we want our conversations to sound like? Conversations after the morning service and after the evening service are, are further opportunities to speak of the things of God. Conversations after evening service give us a wonderful opportunity to, to follow up in asking about prayer requests that fellow members shared during the service. Not only do we want to pray for one another, but as brothers and sisters share prayer requests close to their hearts, it gives us opportunities to better care for one another and speak words of truth and encouragement. So may God continue to grow our love for him and for one another in a way that affects how we speak to one another.
The next sentence in the verse begins by saying that the Lord heard the speech of these God-fearers. In contrast to the Israelites who doubted God's care for them, here we see that actually God is listening, God hears. Whatever those who feared the Lord were discussing, the Lord was watching, the Lord was listening. This should be a comforting thing for us to remember as well. God is near us. He hears us. Verse 16 then speaks of a book of remembrance. This book was written with the names of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. There are some who think that God wrote down the names of these people in a book, similarly to the book of life. Others think that these faithful Israelites wrote down their names themselves as a testimony that they feared the Lord. I would lean towards that, that second idea that these Israelites themselves wrote down their names, as it would be similar to lists of names in Ezra and Nehemiah of those who sought to follow God's word. But either way, it's the God-fearers that God will save. Continue to look at verses 17 and 18. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more, you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. These verses stand in contrast to the Israelites' false claim that evildoers prosper and escape. God will not allow evildoers to escape. There will come a day when the distinction between the righteous and the wicked will be made clear. We spoke of that together in our statement of faith as well. God will spare the righteous as a man spares his son, but the wicked will not be spared. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, you probably don't think of yourselves as wicked. But in the Bible, there are only two groups of people, the righteous and the wicked. And even those who would call ourselves righteous in this room are not righteous because of anything good that we did. No, God gave us his righteousness. So how can wicked people be made righteous? It's because Jesus at the cross bore our sins. And God's anger against sin was unleashed against his son Jesus at the cross. In order for us to become righteous, a truly righteous person had to die in our place. Jesus is the only one in the history of the world who could have done it. He died on the cross for us, and three days later he rose from the dead, showing that his sacrifice, the payment for our sins, was accepted. Death could not hold Jesus. And so if you're, you're here and you're not a Christian today, now is the day to turn to God. Now is the day to turn from living for yourself to live for God. We don't know when God's punishment will come, but Jesus has made a way for you to be spared from that punishment. This is good news for the world. If you'd like to know more about this good news, I would be excited to talk with you more after the service, and so would other Christians around you. And for the Christians in this room, this good news continues to be our hope. Notice the promise of salvation in this passage for God's people. God says he will make his people a treasured possession. 
God thinks of his people as having great value to him. We may be small and insignificant in this universe, but God has made us, and God will continue to make us his treasured possession. Notice also this language of a man sparing his son who serves him. Like we can consider how the master-slave relationship and the father-son relationship are so different. If a servant robbed his master of a year's worth of wages, what do you think the servant's punishment would be? But if a son robbed his father of a year's worth of wages, what do you think the son's punishment would be? Yes, there would still be discipline showed towards the son. But because he is a son, we can picture the father showing mercy with tears and sparing the son of the deserved punishment. Similarly, if an employee robbed you of a small fortune, you might take him to court to get your money back. But if your son robbed you of a small fortune, I imagine you, you really wouldn't want to take him to court. You would grieve over his sin, but you would consider how to show mercy towards your son. And similarly to this, despite all the sins of Israel that we see in the book of Malachi, God promises to spare his people. And as the church, the true children of Abraham, God has spared us today. God's mercy to us should spur wholehearted service to him in our lives. We see the statement, it is vain to serve God for the lie that it is. And in response to God's mercy and kindness to us in saving us, we serve God. With the hope of the punishment of with the hope of the promise of being with Jesus in heaven, we gladly serve God. With the knowledge that God will be just. With the knowledge that our service might not bring us riches or fame in this life, we still gladly serve God. So are we eager to serve God like a son serves his father? When we think of a healthy relationship in which a son serves his father, we think of a son wanting to please his father, not mainly because his father is in charge, but as an expression of love towards his father. Consider the parable that Jesus told of the story of the prodigal son. The son demanded the inheritance that, should have, that the father should have waited to give him until after he died. And then the son squandered his father's money. He ended up penniless and hungry. He hired himself out to feed pigs. And to him, the pig slop looked oh so tasty. And thinking on his situation, thinking on how he had fallen so low, he, he decided to go back to his father, thinking that even his father's servants make much, much, make a much better living than he currently is feeding pigs. So he goes back to his father knowing that he does not deserve to be called his father's son. But what does the father do? The father embraces him. The father rejoices that his son has come home. The father continues to treat his son as his son. The father rejoices in sparing his son. And so after being forgiven so much, 
how would you expect the son to serve his father in the future? The prodigal son is no longer a prodigal son. His heart has changed. His eyes have been opened to his father's goodness and generosity. Brothers and sisters, that prodigal son helps us to see what we ourselves are like. We don't deserve to be called sons and daughters of the living God, yet that is what he calls us. And so we serve God. We seek to obey God's commands. And we seek to serve one another in Christ's body, the church. Let's do this joyfully and thankfully in response to God's good promises. When I think of service in the church, I, I think of and am encouraged by the faithful service of the deacons and deaconesses at WSBC. Thank you for your attitude of service and for how you serve so often behind the scenes. Thank you for caring so well for the body here. And for those of us who are not deacons or deaconesses, let's make their job easier by being quick and joyful to volunteer to help. One way that we can serve God is by seeking to serve our brothers and sisters well in the church. So brothers and sisters, let's remember God's promise to save. Trust in his promises and let us respond with joyful service to God. Our God truly is the unchanging God. Because he is the unchanging God, we can rest on his promises. God promises to bless us as we are obedient to him with all that he has given us. And God promises to save as a father spares his son. What a joy it is to serve such a God. How amazing it is that God would call us his children, his treasured possession. Let's continue to think on these truths and let these truths spur us on to joyful service of him this week and in the weeks to come. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Brothers and sisters, let's go before God now in prayer. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we praise you, for you are the unchanging God. Father, we, we praise you, for you are good, you are just, you are holy, you are kind, you are generous to us. Lord, we, we thank you for who, we thank you for, for all that you've done in Christ. We thank you for calling us your sons and your daughters. We thank you for sparing us. We thank you for choosing us, for making us yours. And Lord, we do pray that we, be, we would be faithful in service to you, that we'd be good stewards of your blessings. In Jesus' name, amen.